today we're going to talk about a storm story in the Bible. So I want you to sit and just meditate for a moment as I ramble. Have you ever had a storm in your life? Have you had multiple storms in your life? And Luke has a very dramatic telling of a storm in Paul's life, a physical storm that gives us a, a good metaphor for the variety of storms that can happen in our lives. We could sit in the big storm of the flood with Noah. You could sit in Jonah's storm that has a lot of similarities to Paul's storm. But you can sit in storms of the life of somebody like Jacob. Jacob had a 20-year-long storm in his life that was the consequence of his own behavior. And his storm was really God dealing with his character. You can sit in cultural storms that somebody like Elijah or Jeremiah processed through where there's this major cultural storm going on, which we can sit in COVID in our own time where here's this major global storm that the whole world has been processing through for the last couple of years. But how that storm has impacted your life, there's a, there's a great deal of variety just in this room even though we all live in the same community, for how that storm has impacted you. Storms can take the, um, the image of marital issues, relationship issues with children. A storm can come into our life through health, through jobs. So as you sit there and meditate on, here, here is this metaphor of storm imagery that you can use in historical events in your life. And there's, again, there's been multiple. Sometimes there's, there's multiple storms that hit you at the same time, and you were just getting the word in the, in the, the Luke uses this morning is tempest-tossed, just tossed around by these events in life that you have absolutely no control over. But who does have control? We are told that God is always sovereign, Correct. There's going to be, in this, in this relation of this storm in Paul's life, there's a, there's a lot, you can tell that Luke is intentionally using words to well up faith, not just in God, but in what God says. So I've titled this morning's message, I Believe God. And it comes out of uh, chapter 27, verse 25 in Acts. And it's these, this word, this sentence that comes out of Paul's mouth. He says, I believe God that it will, the circumstances will be just as it was told me, just as God revealed to me. So I want you to have, one, your personal storms, whether you're in one right now, whether you just came out of one, you are guaranteed that you are going to enter into another storm. But there's this position of faith, and the position of faith is not just, I believe in God. I believe that God exists. I believe that God is. It's because we're told even in the, you know, the demons believe in God, and they tremble. And the contrast of believing in God and believing God is this. Do you believe the word of God? And this is a yes or no question. So when you sit down and you sit in the Gospels and you read all the little, not the little, but these, these red letter sections. I have a red letter Bible, so all of Jesus' words are in red for me. And I listen to his teaching. Do I believe what comes out of his mouth? Do you? I, I mean, I've, I have never had to jump over the hurdle once I entered into faith and recognition in regards to who Jesus Christ is, I have never had to uh, stumble over whether I believe the words are true or not. I've stumbled in, well, what does that mean? I don't understand this. You know, I've had to process through that kind of conversation. But here's the thing. When you are in the middle of the storm, this is exactly what we need, is not unbelief and doubt, which always creeps in. And we're going to see it creep in in Paul's life, because God sends an angel to him to give him cheer, to give him courage, because even in the midst of he has the word from God, Jesus appeared to him and said, I am sending you to Rome to be a witness. 
So Paul is sitting in a vision of Jesus and the word of Jesus that he is going to Rome. But everything that we're going to read, and again, this dramatic narrative that Luke gives to us, everything in Paul's life is contrary to you going to Rome. Everything in Paul's current context as we go through this storm, Paul, you're going to die. But wait a minute, Jesus said I was going to go to Rome. I believe God. Not just in God, I believe his words. I believe what he's spoken to me. And part of what we're going to travel in and part of what I want you to be able to sit in and another question to ask is, how do you hear God? Sometimes he is going to speak to us in our hearts, in our minds, through his spirit. There is going to be a recognition that what you were thinking about and processing through, that God is trying to get your attention and he's speaking to you directly. He can give you dreams. He can send you a vision. More often than not, he is going to use his word to speak his voice to you. He can use circumstances. He can use a billboard. He can use a song. He can use anything to get your attention. But when he gets your attention... In the midst of the storm, when you were crying out, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, help me, I need you, deliver me, save me, he speaks. And what he speaks is always true. Now you have to filter through that information. Is this really of God? Is this of me? Is this somebody else's counsel? But when he gives you the clarity that he has spoken to you, this is, this is what wells up faith in our life, in the storms that all of us go through until we see him to face to face. This is faith. I believe God. Amen? And then we get a specific testimony. And again, you can sit in most of the accounts in God's word and use this storm imagery. So Acts chapter 27 is where we are. Paul, remember, he has been for two years under Roman arrest in Caesarea and all the prior events. We're not going to get into any of that. But here in chapter 27, it's decided that we, and notice we, so Luke is back in first-person narrative. So Luke traveled with Paul from Philippi all the way down into Jerusalem. He was there when Paul got arrested, and now, you know, when Paul went to Caesarea for his trials there, and Paul is being ministered to by his friends. Um, we get a little bit of insight of Paul's health problems, whether it's eye, his eyes or other things, that he is receiving care from Dr. Luke. Um, he's a brother in the Lord. They have relationship. But Luke, the assumption is he's been in this community with Paul the entire time. But now, again, it's, it's the we statement. So Paul is not just in chains getting on this boat by himself. There's brother Luke with them, and we're also told Aristarchus. So this is a first-person testimony in regards to this storm, as Luke is dramatically telling it to us. So that we should sail to Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, and this is, uh, is modern-day Turkey uh, by Troas, if you remember. You can turn in your maps and your Bibles if you have them for that location. But they enter into this ship. Uh, that's its home port as they're in Caesarea. They put out to sea meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. So, modern-day Turkey again. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. He's one of the ones with Luke that traveled to bring the gift into Jerusalem, and he's a brother who has remained with Paul. So, verse 3, it says, The next day we landed at Sidon. So, this is at the northern end of Israel as you travel north up the coast. Julius treated Paul kindly. And this word for kindly, it's, it's philanthropy. So philanthropy literally means it's the love of man. So it's not Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, that relationship. But here we're told that this centurion is treating Paul with kindness, with compassion for humanity. He understands the condition that he is as a prisoner of, of Rome, this centurion has authority over Paul, but Paul's 
Some of the other prisoners, the assumption is, is that all of these prisoners that are going back to Rome, that they're not just going for their court case before Ciro, C- Ciro, Caesar, um, the majority of them are probably going to be fodder, meat, entertainment for the Colosseum in Rome, where they're going to be subjected to a violent end as a prisoner of Rome. So here you have Paul not in this crowd of these heathens and, you know, the scum of society according to Rome and however they wanted to find that, and they're going to be sent to their death in Rome. But here you have this centurion teaching, treating Paul with that standard love that we ought to have for all mankind. And again, you see this love for mankind, whether an individual believes in the Almighty God or not, we see that behavior in philanthropy a lot and have a lot of examples. So treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care, receive attention. Again, this is that snapshot, and we have Paul's testimony in other places that he had some health issues, and this is one of the assumptions why Luke is there in constant relationship with Paul, whatever his physical needs may be. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And again, this is, this is going to be building up throughout this entire storm, this season in Paul's life. He's been told there is a future destination for him, but all of the present events in his life are contrary uh, to that reality of where he's being sent. So as they sail up the coast, they're in Sidon, they are they're, they're keeping close to the coast if you, if you have a map of Turkey. So they stay on the north side of Cyprus, which is going to be sheltered from the main body of the Mediterranean Sea by this island that's going to help hopefully break up the wind and break up the size of the waves, so to say, as they stay closer into land. And hopefully they're getting wind off the shore that's going to keep propelling them forward. But the testimony that Luke is saying is as they, are, as they are on this boat and they are heading out and they are trying to travel west, that everything is a headwind. Remember when Paul came to Jerusalem, they were able to travel to Jerusalem very quickly. That's because that's the, that's the way that the winds blow in this area. They're able to get to the east quickly. To the west is always a fight. And here's the contrary wind that is being described. And again, the drama is going to build. Verse 5, when we had sailed over the sea which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, so these areas at you know, the bottom of Turkey as they're traveling. We came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and put us on board. So here's where we want to kind of pause for imagery. All right, so when I think of a ship, usually I'm thinking of like Sea of Galilee and fishing boats, and I'm not sure how many people are on this boat and how big it is. We're told later on in context, there's 276 human beings on this Alexandrian ship. And what this is, this is a ship of Egypt, and it's a grain barge. So the whole purpose of, of this boat is to take grain from the breadbasket of the Nile in Egypt, and Rome is feeding its masses out of this exports out of the Nile. So they find this Alexandrian ship. Now, perspective. This room from wall to wall is 100 feet, okay? From the back wall to the front wall is 75 feet. So an Alexandrian ship roughly 140 feet long. So for this wall to that wall is 100 feet, divide this room essentially in half, and add another 40 to 50 feet in that direction. If it's 75 feet this way, these ships are roughly 36 feet wide. So now divide this room in half, visually, you know, there's a nice little circle in the middle of the room, give yourself from wall to wall of how wide the ship is and how long this ship is, and understand there's 276 human beings on this. Some of them are sailors, some of them are soldiers, some of them are traveling. I mean, this, was, this is how you got about the Roman Empire in this day. You find a ship going to where you want to go, or partially the way you want to go. The captain will tell you what the fare is, and you decide to pay it or not. Okay, this is, this is, so the ship's cargo, it's wheat, it's passengers, big boat, yeah? 
So now as they are placed onto this boat, this ship, verse 7, we sailed slowly, creeping along many days. We arrived with difficulty. And this, is, this word means it's hard to accomplish. And here's the reality. Again, we're going to pull out a lot of applications and just the language that Luke is using in regards to this event. But when it comes to the Lord's will being performed in our lives, often it requires a lot of hard work on our end. Now, this isn't working for your salvation, but as we serve the Lord, as we serve one another, to remain in the path that the Lord is sending us down, often those things that he's asking us to accomplish in him and through him, they're, they're hard to accomplish. There's, there's difficulty to keep heading in the direction that God is telling you to head in. And again, this is the, uh, the narrative that Luke is going to continue to dramatically uh, write about. So they arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to, to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, so now they're heading towards the southwest is how they're traveling. And again, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, they're coming around the, the Horn of Crete, so to say, and passing it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, Fair Harbor, near the city of Lassia. So we're not told how long they've been traveling, but what we are told is every nautical mile that they proceed it is slow it is difficult lots of headwind i'm sure tempers are a little bit irritated seasickness i'm sure is going on verse 9 now when much time had been spent so they are ported here in fair havens the weather the wind is contrary so they're remaining in this community for an extended period of time because the sailing was now dangerous. It's literally, it's unsafe. And the sentence here, because the fast was already over. So the fast, this is dealing with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement lands in late September, early October. So this gives us a timestamp. When it comes to sailing in the Mediterranean Sea at this time, it's early November through early March is off limits. The seas are too rough. To, to sail, so they are approaching. Here they are, late September, if it's 59 AD, which is the time frame. Um, the Day of Atonement would have been in early October, so winter is approaching, and the seas and the weather are starting to become dangerous and unsafe. So Paul has some advice as a slave, and he's going to listen to slave's advice here in verse 10, saying, men, I perceive... Paul's saying it in a way that we understand that, hey, that he's just logically reasoning through this stuff, but based upon what he says and how he says it, we believe that the Spirit's spoken to him and given him some knowledge. Man, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and with much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the hel helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And all of us would say, duh. If you're on a boat, you don't want to take my advice. I don't know whether to call the boat a boat or a ship or a dinghy. You know, I don't know the, the lingo. I have no advice to give you whatsoever, so you don't want to listen to my advice. And again, Paul just publicly stated this. And if you were the centurion and you're responsible for this ship and this crew and you're telling people what to do, who are you going to listen to? The guy that's in change or the guy that owns the boats and the guy that runs the boat. Owns the boat, runs the boat, right? So, verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable, literally, it's, it's, this is not where we want to spend winter. It's inconvenient. It's not the happening town. It's not the comfortable port to, to winter in all along. It's not sheltered from the weather. Whatever it may be, but we sit in the storms of life, and often the condition in that storm, listen, this is not making me happy. This is really inconvenient according to my will and my wants right now. So often we'll try and seek to get out of the circumstances that we're in, 
And this seems to be what Luke is conveying. It's not suitable to winter in. The majority advise that uh, to set sail from there also, if by any means they could, that they had the power to be able to reach Phoenix, this other harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. So they don't want to be stuck in fair havens. It's not living up to its name. They want to head to Phoenix and remain there for the extended months to winter through. Verse 13 sets it up wonderfully. So when the south wind blew softly. So they've been sitting in fair havens. The weather's been tumultuous. They're remaining there an extended period of time. They want to get to this next port. They know that they can't make it all the way to Rome, but they want to winter in a different place. And here's a day. The sun rises beautifully. The south wind, so the wind's coming up from the south. That's going to help drive them to the west where they want to travel. All the conditions look perfect. You know, again, there's going to be all their different, uh, their pagan rituals and their offering to gods that they've gone through, and everything is looking favorable for their plan, supposing that they had obtained their plan, their desire. Everybody get on ship. They put out the sea. They're keeping close by to Crete, so not close enough that they're going to be in danger to the shoreline, but Crete is within, within vision on this beautiful morning as they're sailing. But verse 14, the drama. But not long after, a tempestuous, so this is a violent, strong whirlwind, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So this is a, you know, it's a, it's a mash of Greek and Latin words, but it's saying that wind from the northeast, and this is, you know, standard for the area, standard for the time. It's a, it's a routine and violent enough event that it's been specifically named by the sailors. So when you said this word, everybody would know exactly what you're talking about. So the gentle south breeze has now turned into a very violent, strong wind that is contrary to their will. Verse 15 says, So when the ship was caught and could not head into, could not face Go face to face into the wind, it says, we let her drive, which is meaning it's just the wind is going to take us where it's going to take us. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, so again on your map you can see this island uh, south of Crete, it says we secured this skiff with difficulty. Skiff is a you know, smaller boat that they use to go on shore, those kinds of things, typically towed behind the boat. They are, don't want to lose this, and they don't want it to get filled with water and sink and all those kind of things. So they're pulling it in with difficulty again. Just You can see all the image, and, Paul, and Luke is using the we language. Everybody, all hands on deck. Everybody needs to help out because this is a major storm, and all of our lives are involved. Verse 17, when they had taken it on board... They used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. So here, here's the language. So when they pull the skiff on board, they secure this external boat on the, on the deck of the ship. It's told that they use these cables and the literal word is for help. And this is a lot of the imagery that I want to bring out. So when you sit in the rest that we have promised to us in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 4, all of that language talking about the rest that we need to enter in into Jesus goes through this description of, of God's word that it is that it is sharp, that it pierces our souls, that it can divide to the distinction between the soul and the spirit. But in there, it's, it's giving us this, this, in that letter, we are told that we are to approach God's throne of grace for mercy and for help in the time of need. So that word for help in Hebrews chapter 4 and the word for cables here are the only two times that this word is used in the entire word of God. So, like, sit in the imagery of what's, being, of what's being told to us. As you are in this storm, 
the help that is necessary. They're, they're going probably from the bow of the boat with these cables, whether they're chains, whether they're ropes. They're undergirding this boat to give it strength and give it stability, stability to give it help in the midst of the storm. And that's the exact encouragement that we have in Hebrews 4. When you need God's help, when you need God's mercy, when you are looking for, and again, it is always the opportune time to boldly approach the throne of grace for help um, in the time of need, because we all have, especially in the midst of the storm, this is when you start crying out in prayer, oh God, where are you? I need you. I need your clarity. I need your salvation. I need your deliverance. This is this word for the cables that are used to undergird this ship. And ultimately, describing the relationship that we have with God to help in our time of need. These Sirtis sands are on the northern coast of Africa, so the, the sailing language is if they leave the mainsail up, the wind is going to drive them in that direction. There are sandbars that they're afraid that if they can keep the sail up and let the wind continue to drive them in that way, that that's where they'd end up. So they lower the mainsail and they are just leaving this wood boat, wood ship, to be driven by the wind and the currents of the Mediterranean where they are as they are all saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, to whatever God they may be praying to. Verse 18 says, because we were exceedingly, violently tempest-tossed. The next day, they lighten the ship. They start throwing things overboard. And priority, right? What can we get rid of first to help the boat to remain as high in the water as possible? On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. That's, don't you need that stuff to sail? Eh, probably get rid of it. I can't, I can't imagine, again, the, the stress of this. Um, every single person is staring their death in the face, the anxiety that that would produce as we sit with Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. You know, they have faith in Jesus Christ. They know that Jesus is in control. But do you not think that they're still emotional, that they are still fearful, that they still have worry and anxiety? Paul is sitting in the language, I know that Jesus told me that I'm going to Rome. So he may not be staring his death in the face, but he's still staring a very uncomfortable circumstance in the face. And we're told, you know, Paul's own testimony says that, you know, he spent a night and a day in the deep as the result of a shipwreck, and we don't understand that he's talking about this shipwreck. Maybe he is, maybe he wasn't, but we think that he's experienced the shipwreck before. So again, if, you've, if history is repeating itself, it has. Those old emotions can be thrown up in your face in the new circumstance, yes? Here they are throwing the ship's tackle overboard. Now, it's not they're throwing everything overboard, but they're re throwing the redundant items overboard to lighten it as much as possible. Verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat upon us, lie upon us. Imagine how cold you'd be. Any of you get seasickness? Get a little woozy? Nobody's eating? Everybody, again, 276 souls, and all of them are in the same event, and they're responding to the same event in different ways, in different stresses. What do the conversations look like? You know, any fights broken out on, you know, what's that tension? Many days, no light, the storm's not letting up. We see no stars. They have no idea where they are. They are in the midst of a boat that they have absolutely no control over whatsoever. They are at the whim of the storm, so to say. But again, from a believer's perspective, who's in control? God is still in control, and he's still present. But look at the drama. As this no small tempest beat upon them, says all hope that we would be saved was finally 
given up. You ever been there? In that particular storm, whatever it may be, where it's all hope, all expectation, all of your... There, there is no getting out of this. We're done. And again, this, this is the tone of the human beings. You feel Luke's drama? And Luke, remember, Luke lived this. But after long abstinence from food, not because they're just fasting to seek the mercy from God, but because they can't keep their food down, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, (laughs) you should have listened to me. (laughs) We don't have his tone. But, you know, in, the, in these kind of moments, I was right. <laughs> you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you, take heart. And literally, to take heart, the, the language is, I'm encouraging you men, be cheerful. Remember, the, the, their, their current state of mind of soul no hope. It's gone. And now this guy is standing before you and is telling them to be cheerful. Why? I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. No one's going to die but the boat. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, God sent to Paul a messenger to whom I belong, to whom literally I am, and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. Why does Paul need to be told not to be afraid? Because he's afraid. In faith, in trust, in the moment, he's fearful. It's the right emotion. And as God sends a messenger out of the messenger's mouth, Paul, do not be afraid. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And I get in my, my understanding of that line is Paul's been praying for every single one on this boat that's with him. Not only is he crying out to God for himself in the circumstances, but he's crying out for the human beings that are in the same storm with them, that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. Because if those men die, Paul knows the eternity that they step into without Jesus. And here Paul is praying for them. And God sends a messenger to Paul to say, God has heard your prayers, Paul. And not only are you going to be preserved and saved, Every single one of the human beings on this boat that you have been praying for, they will be saved too. They will be preserved too. You think that they had any extended conversations with Paul? After the drama, I guarantee that there are men who stepped into the faith in Jesus Christ because of this storm and because of the words that God gave to Paul to speak to them. So verse 25, Therefore, take heart, be cheerful, men, and here's our line. For I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. And I think, and again, this, this is one of those lines in the word of God. You should know its address. You should know its context. You can apply that singular sentence to just about every passage in God's word, and you can apply this circumstance to just about, not just about, to every single circumstance of your life. But there's, there's, a, there's a qualifier here. Do you know what God has said? We, we, we must spend intentional, concentrated, extended time in this document because this has been preserved for us by him so that we can hear his voice. 
And he repetitiously, I, I can stand before you and I can give you a hundred, two hundred, a thousand circumstances in my life where the Lord's voice has been heard through these pages. I can give you the testimony of circumstances in my life where he has spoken to me through his word and then he's confirmed it through the song, through the billboard, through the, the conversation of life. Of He captured my attention here and then he's confirming it in other circumstances that I heard the voice of God. He captures my attention out there. He speaks to me through his spirits. And I'm meditating and I'm chewing on something. And God, is that you? Is this what you're directing and you're saying? And I go to his word and he speaks to me that confirmation. To where I can confidently say, I believe God. That it, what's it? Is it your eternity? Is it the forgiveness and mercy and grace that you need today? Is it the understanding that God is in control and is with that person who you are seeking God for his mercy and grace and their circumstance and their storm? I believe God that it, whatever your it is, it will be just as it was told me. What a statement of faith. Let those words, let that be imprinted on your heart today and for all eternity. You can sit in whatever your history is, and you know how God has spoken to you in those different circumstances and confirmed to you that he is who he claims to be. That whatever you're going through right now, he's the same God, and he will speak. Whatever you think may be around the corner, whatever you don't have a clue is in your future, the storm that is coming, he will speak. And whatever the circumstance is, whether it's life, whether it's death, it's going to be just as God said. We can trust him in all things. All right, we got to pick this up. We're going to be here all day. Now when the 14th, I can, two weeks of this. Now when the 14th night had come, so we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. And again, for, the Adriatic is, you know, that on the northeast of the boot of Italy, right? So for us, as you travel down into the Mediterranean, the Ionian Sea is right there. Mediterranean Sea is underneath that. Today on our map, we'd understand this Adriatic as the Ionian in our definition. This is about midnight, so in the middle of the night, literally, the sailors, they sense, they're, they're starting to hear something's changed in the water, and these guys experienced that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings. This is a, a rope that has a weight on the end of it. You throw it into the water, and as it drops down, once it stops descending, you pull it up, and you start to measure it, and it's 20 fathoms. A fathom is literally however far you can hold out your arms. That's how long a fathom is. So think about it. You throw a rope into the water. It's got a weight, and it drops all the way down. And as you're pulling it out, you've gone one, two, three. It's 20 fathoms. The bottom of the ocean here, is a, it's 120 feet. They pull it up, they count as they're still drifting in and they're listening, they take another sounding. It's 15 fathoms, so 90 feet. So once they hit this 90 feet, verse 29, it says, then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from, anchors from the stern. So the boat is being driven into this island that they cannot see, that they're hearing. They know that the, uh, that the depth of the ocean is becoming more shallow, so they throw four anchors off the back of the boat to hold them in place. So they drop these off the stern, and what do they do? They're praying, oh God, oh God, oh God, let the sun come up so we can see what's going on. And again, those prayers, depending on the human soul that's praying it, are going to take all different kinds of forms and to different deities. Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Aristarchus for sure, have boldly approached the throne of grace for God's mercy and for help in this time of need. May day come, verse 30. As the sailors were seeking to escape, 
seeking to get off this boat. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. So again, you can see the sailors. The boat stopped. There's a little group of these guys. They're letting off the skiff. And hey, I don't know about the rest of these, but let's get on this boat and get the shore safely and you know, forget about these fools, right? You can see that Paul's noticing them scheming. And Paul's a tattletale here. Goes to the centurion the soldiers. It says, unless these men stay on the ship, remain, abide. And boy, we can sit in all the, especially in the Gospel of John and John's writings, he very often communicates the idea of remaining in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, not seeking your own energy to save yourself and deliver yourself, but remain in the Lord. Hey, unless these guys stay in the ship, you, all y'all, have no power to be saved. So the soldiers, what do they do? They walk over the ropes, and they cut off the skiff and let it fall off. So the guys who were scheming to get off the boat, do you think they're not the slightest bit angry at this event? Probably looking at Paul, ready to murder him. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all, to take food, and this is, this is to, to share in food. This is the idea, it's the same language that we'd use for communion, saying today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food. And the idea of waiting there is that they've waited in apprehension and anxiety. They've been waiting for you know, something to change. 14 days that they've continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take nourishment, for this is your survival. Literally, this is your salvation. Since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. What a, what a, what a testimony to be able to communicate to all these unbelievers in this circumstance. When he had said these things, have this... So with Jesus on that last supper, that Passover meal, when he said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. We had broken it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food to themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, when they were satisfied, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. So they've taken the nourishment. They're getting ready for the day. They are getting rid of all of the extra weight off the boat. There's nothing to preserve because they want it as high in the water as possible. Verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land. So they now see the islands. Nobody recognizes where they are. But they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. So there is a, um, you can get, it's, it's B-A-S-E, it's, it's an acronym, it's base.org is the website, and it'll walk you through a whole, the whole narrative of the, there's four anchors that were found, it's called St. Thomas Bay in Malta. Uh, St. Paul's Bay is the traditional bay where they think that this event transpired, and you know, the, based on the evidence of what's being said here, um, they think that St. Thomas Bay is more likely. In the 1960s, there were four anchors that were found about 40 yards apart from each other. Three of them have been lost. You know, the, 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 the people who found the anchors didn't know what they found. They just, they pulled them up and melted them down for scuba gear and that kind of stuff. One of these anchors remains. It dates from this time period, and it's one of those things. It's possible that this is one of the very anchors that was left in the ocean on that day. Not guaranteed, but possible. So meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore, but striking a place where two seas met. So this is where, again, that language of the Ionian and the Mediterranean as, as these currents meet one another, creating a, a sandbar. The ship ran aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence, by the force of the waves. So this is now lodged firmly into the sandbar. They are in the shallowness of the water that is the waves are coming in. They are, they are smashing against the back of this ship, and it is starting to break. The soldiers' plan 
was to kill the prisoners. <laughs> the rest of us, we're going to be all right, but kill these guys. And again, the fear is lest any of them should swim away and escape. So there's their Roman responsibility for the prisoners. But the centurion wanting to save Paul kept them from their purpose and commanded that they, should, that they could swim and jump overboard first and first get to land. So, that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, you know, whatever you can float on, some boards and the parts of the ship that are breaking off. So it was that they all escaped safely to the land. And it's literally, they were brought safely through. And you can sit in, again, this is a, a storm story that I mentioned to begin with. You can apply this, you can apply this factual historical testimony of Luke in regards to the circumstance, to so many circumstances of your life, to a minor storm in the major storm. But the, the major factor is not your faith that God is, but your faith that he's true, your faith that he speaks, your faith that what he says, that it is true, that it is real. Again, when you, when you hold on to the promises of God in the midst of the storm, that's what brings in peace because the storm doesn't stop, right? More often than not, again, in, in this particular instance, they are, they've been brought safely through to land, and this singular storm has just ceased in the life of Paul and others, but Paul's still in the midst of a greater storm in his life. He's entering into another storm. He's going to spend another two years in Rome. History, history tells us that he has his head cut off in Rome. He still has a storm. These other individuals that just processed through this circumstance, they just went through a life circumstance where they're receiving testimony in regards to who the true and living God is. And here's this God's representative. And this God sent a messenger to speak to him. And what he was told is actually what was brought about in this particular circumstance. Do you think those 276 persons are now a little bit curious about who Paul believes in. I guarantee it. I, I mean, this is, this is why we sit in our storm stories. If we sit down and go have lunch together, go have dinner together, and I listen to the stories that God has taken you through, and you tell me not just the weird human flesh stories, but you tell me who God was through that storm for you, what he spoke to you, how you kicked against it, how you freaked out, how you remained stable. You know, again, we respond to these storms in different ways in life, right? And sometimes there's multiple violent, tempest-tossing circumstances that you're processing through. The encouragement and the exhortation that I get out of this passage, again, it's I believe in God. And not only do I believe in him, I believe the words that come out of his mouth. I trust him for my eternity. I trust him for my present. And whatever the intervening time is before I see him face to face, I am going to encounter a variety of storms in my future. They are going to apply to my spouse. They're going to apply to you who are in this room. They're going to apply to my children. They're going to apply to our country, my job, my neighbors. There are hundreds of storms in my future. And our Jesus is our constant. I believe his words. I believe that he is who he says that he is. I believe that he's going to do what he tells me. Big picture, of course, but also in the little moment. I trust him for the parking space. You know, right? I trust him for the little things and the big things. I trust him in the little storms and the big storms. I trust him in the midst of the storm where I tell him, I, I got this. I can, I can steer this. I can steer this storm. You just, you just stay in the boat with me, Jesus. And in those storms where I'm saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, wake up. Don't you know I'm going to die? And where is he? He has promised to always be with us. I believe God that it will be, that he will always be with me. Why? 
That's what he said. So I believe him. That's faith. Amen? All right, worship team, let's get up here and let us praise our God greatly. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. And I know, Lord, that your actions in my life compels me to love you. (laughs) I, I can sit in my different storms, whether I brought the storm into my life, whether it was the world, whether it was the culture, whether it was the devil, whatever that the cause of those different storms, Lord. I've experienced your peace, the peace that comes from your words, the peace that comes from that assurance that your will is being performed, the peace that comes that I am heading in the direction that you are leading. Even when I am in the midst of an ocean, Lord, when I can't see, I can't direct, I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know where the land is. I've been in those moments, Lord, to confidently say, I believe you. And I'm, I'm humbly thankful that you spoke then. You gave me the exact words that I needed in all of those circumstances. And Lord, that's what keeps me in hope. In your love for me, Lord, you've, you've never allowed me to get to the point where I've thrown up my hands in exasperation and all hope is gone. And I know the only reason is because you were always there and you were with me, Lord, and you guard my heart from going in those directions. When I'm stressed, when I'm sad, when I'm depressed, when I'm discouraged, when the storm of life is just tossing me about, you remind me of this verse. And I have no other place to go other than say, I believe that verse. I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. In the name of Jesus, amen.